As Pastor Bart said, we are beginning a new series today on an EVC family Christmas. And one thing I love about Christmas is all the Christmas decorations. And you know a lot about your own family, about how you decorate for Christmas. I mean, how many of you are the uh, Christmas vacation types and you uh, have all the lights on the house? Okay, that's nobody here, okay? How many of you the Ebenezer Scrooge types and you don't even put up lights on your house? Okay, do I? Okay, you... You guys are somewhere lukewarm and in the middle, okay? The Bible has something to say about that as well. But that's another message for another entire day. As, as we come together today, we think about an EVC family Christmas. If you're our guest today, we just I'm so thankful that you're here today because over the next couple of weeks, we're really going to be talking about who we are as a church and what are our family values And you can tell a lot about a family, about uh, Christmas tradition, especially when you think about um, all the traditions and things that we do uh, around Christmas. And one of my favorite things was decorating uh, with my mom for Christmas. I remember, uh, I believe I was a sophomore in college, and I remember telling her, please wait till I get home so I can help you decorate. For Christmas. I mean, my family, we went through all the stages in the 70s. I mean, how many of you had an aluminum tree with the wheel that went around and it changed colors, okay? We had one of those. That was one of my favorite trees. But I love decorating with my mom for Christmas. It was just something about, we'd put Christmas music on, and there was something about some of our family traditions as, as we would go, go home for Christmas. And one particular Christmas... Um, both of our girls had been born. They were still pretty young. My dad knew that we would be driving in at night and coming to the house at night. And it would, he wanted it to be all lit up. And Clark Griswold had nothing on my father for this particular Christmas. We had this really interesting tree out in front of our house. It was, it's called a weeping mulberry. And here's the best description I can give, uh, to you about it. And it kind of looked like Cousin It from the Adams family, okay? It was about this tall, but the branches would go all the way down to the ground. But somehow he decided, he was a very artistic person, he was a builder, and he decided that that weeping mulberry, when it didn't have leaves, made a great foundation for a deer, okay? And so he fashioned this huge deer head, okay, out of grapevine, and it had these antlers, and it had enough lights to light up New York City on all these antlers, and it had a huge what in the middle? It had a huge red nose, right? So that when we're driving up, my girls are just going nuts. That Rudolph is in the front yard, and it is this huge monstrosity of this deer, and it was the ugliest thing I think I have ever, ever seen. It was the kind of thing you'd hope not to wake up with in the bed or something, you know, that there's a deer head in my bed. Am I going to die? You know, I, I don't know what it is about that. But decorating for Christmas and the Christmas traditions are huge in our families. And sometimes when we get married, we take all of our Christmas traditions and they get slammed up against our spouse's Christmas traditions, right? And there is the opportunity for what we call marital compromise. Can I get an amen? You know what that is? Well, in our family, yeah, you do what your wife wants to do. Okay, thank you. (laughs) Well, marital compromise in our life kind of came about one Christmas that was very special to us because we had just bought our first house, and Kara had been born about three months earlier, and you put all these first in the room, and it's potential for some great opportunities for compromise. 
And you see, in Jennifer's family, they had always had artificial Christmas trees. But in my family, we always, except for the aluminum one, had a real blue spruce Christmas tree. And I mean, we had worked on it. And I will say, mainly I had worked on the decoration of this Christmas tree. And it was beautiful. It had all the bulbs that my mother had given me. So I'm, I'm reliving all of our traditions as I'm doing our tree. And it had all the little icicles on it and had the beautiful multicolored lights. Who loves the multicolored light? All right, all right. I discovered that Jennifer loves the clear light, okay? Not the multicolored light, but the clear light. That was one discovery that I made during this process. But I had this tree beautifully decorated. It was in our front study area, a little room that was in the front of our house. And it was just beautiful. I was so proud of our Christmas tree. But little did I know that that our young three-month-old baby girl was evidently allergic to real Christmas trees. Now, I contend with you to this day. She was really allergic to Jennifer's cat, okay? But Jennifer blamed her asthma attack that particular night on the real Christmas tree. Now, this led to a time of creative communication for about one hour in our marriage of the beautiful Christmas tree and the child who can't breathe. I'm weighing these. Which of these should go? I don't know. At 11.30, in a very joyful mood at night, I took Christmas tree decorations, lights and all, shoving it through the front door like Ebenezer Scrooge, and I take it out to our flower bed, and I plop it down and plug it in. And that Christmas tree, to the glory of God, stayed there the whole season And my next-door neighbors who now live in Mississippi still laugh every Christmas thinking about the war that went on in the Miller home and that beautiful Christmas tree that was decorated and in our front yard. Well, I'm sure that your stories of marital compromise, you have some good ones, I am sure. But have you ever asked the question, why do we have lit Christmas trees? Where does that really come from? What does it actually represent? Well, actually, the the tradition began in the 17th century in German households as they would celebrate Christmas. And I'm not sure how much beer you would have to drink to think that this was a good idea. But not having electric light, because electricity has not been invented, they take actual candles and wax the leaves and stick them on. Again, not sure how much alcohol you have to have in your system to think that's a good idea. But they did, and it started multiple fires throughout Germany, okay? But that was the tradition of the first Christmas tree. It was the whole aspect of Jesus Christ being light. That when he entered onto our scene for such a time as this, at just the right moment that Jesus came onto the scene, that he was the light of the world. Well, those Christmas trees and that tradition began, but in 1882, with the invention of electricity, one of the contemporaries, a man who actually worked with Thomas Edison to invent the first light bulb, had a string of bulbs in red, white, and blue that he strung around an evergreen tree and thus began the tradition of electric Christmas lights 
around a tree, representing Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Grover Cleveland took it into the White House in 1895, and the tradition has just grown and grown and grown around our country. That now, most every home has a Christmas tree, even if they don't know what it means. That it literally represents the cross of Jesus Christ. And that Jesus is, as Kara sang earlier, the light of the world. Isaiah 49 verse 6 talks about this. It says, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Now that is what we call a dual prophecy. Because it's a prophecy, uh, it's actually a, a tri-prophecy, because it's prophesying something that's taking place in Isaiah's day. But it's also talking about Jesus Christ, who will be the light to the nations. And it's also talking about you and me. Do you realize today that we are the light to the nations? That Jesus Christ still lives on this earth in bodily form. His spirit lives in you and me. And we are the bodily form. Jesus Christ is still the light of the world. He is the light to the nations. And as we talk about EVC family values and our family Christmas, as we gather around the fire and we have hot chocolate, and as we all come together here this Sunday morning, we're talking about the family value of extending God's kingdom into this world. What Christ has called us to do and to be is to extend His kingdom to a world who so desperately needs this light that He represents. Jesus Christ, that's our first point today, Jesus Christ is the light of the world. This message is incredibly simple today, but, but it's incredibly true. In the book of John, the first, the gospel of John, John chapter 1, verses 3 to, through 10 says this, All things were made through Him, and without Him not, was not anything made that was made. In other words, this mirrors the very first chapter of Genesis in the Bible. That Jesus was the reason that all things were made. Colossians comes a little bit later and says that He is the cosmic glue that holds all things together. That Jesus Christ literally holds the atoms of the world together. And the atheists may not understand it today, but if Jesus had not come to this world, we would not have light because Jesus was present with the Father, the Creator, on that day when light was created. And He was that light. And He was the reason for that creation. Jesus Christ is our light. He gives light to this world. In Him, this passage says in John, in Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines out in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, and his name was John. And he came to be a witness, to bear witness about this light that all might believe through him. Now, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about that light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made, again, through him, yet the world did not know him. Jesus Christ is this light, the light of the world. I want you to go back, if you can, in your own mind. Now, Last time I checked, there's not anyone in our service today that was born before electricity, okay, around 1880. There's a couple of you that I might make mention. You, you're a little close, but you're not nearly as close as you might think you are 
as being born around the time that electricity was invented. And when electricity was invented in the 1880s, it revolutionized everything that we see and everything that we do. We would, need not, we would not be having services in a building where we actually try to control the light so we can see a video or see different things that are happening. It wouldn't happen because everything would be open and light would pervade everything because there was no electrical light. There were no cell phones. How many of you parents, you know this look? Okay? This look is always... I don't care if there's a text coming in or an email coming in or a video to be watched. It's always the phone, okay? And when I get onto my daughters for looking at my phone, their phone like that, you know what they say to me? Well, Dad, you're always on your phone just like us. And I'm like, hey, quit it, Jack. I mean, stop it. Really. I mean, let's talk about you. This is about you. This is not about me, okay? This is do as I say and not as I actually, you actually see me do. That's not what this is about. But electricity changed everything. It changed our recreation schedules. It changed what time we got up. It changed the amount of time that we worked. It changed this wonderful thing of, uh, that was eventually invented of, as a computer that made our, our lives so much easier, right? All right? Some of us are going, no, I hate that thing. I'd like to throw it out, okay? So all these inventions and things that our lives are centered around are around this issue of electricity. But if you were to go back in the time that Jesus was born into this world, this whole concept of Jesus being the light is a whole totally different thing. If you've ever been in a place that is totally and absolutely dark and you just have the flicker of a match, it's amazing the transformation that can take place with a small candle if you're in total darkness. Do you understand that darkness and light cannot coexist together? Light always overcomes the darkness. When light comes into a situation and it lights up a room, it literally dispels the darkness. And that is what Jesus Christ did when he came to this earth. He was the light of this world. A little later in John, it says, John 8 verse 12 says, and Jesus spoke to them saying, he declared this of himself. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, will not walk in darkness. What does your life look like today? Does it look like a huge run into the light? Does it look like a stumbling around in darkness? Jesus has called us to, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have in us the light of life. As we sang earlier, joy to the world. The Lord is come and he comes with into this world, into the dark world in which we live, to bring us the light of salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And no man, no woman, no boy, no girl comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the way. There's not another way. There's not several ways. This tree and these lights represent the cross and the light that Jesus brought into our lives. So we stand and we declare that Jesus is this light. But what does light do? If you went into the Old Testament and looked at Psalm 119, your word is a light unto my feet and a lamp unto my path. A light unto my path, a lamp unto my feet. As Jesus is that his word, the living rhema, the word of God, the, the scripture itself is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The picture of that is a small oil-based lamp. 
And again, we can't get it because we see these huge lights and we see everything lit up that we can see details about each other's faces and details. Sometimes we don't want to see those details. But nevertheless, it lights us up to the point where we can see all those things. And, but a little oil lamp that Jesus was talking about, that the Psalms are talking about describing who Jesus is, is that little lamp that would give us enough light to take the next step. Now, when we think about God's will in our lives, we want to have the one million candle bulb, don't we, that lights our way, that we can see everything. But I'm here to tell you today that if we saw into our future everything that that might show us, we might not ever take a step. The fear might be so great that we wouldn't take the next step. But he says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I be held up and just give me the next step. Show me, Jesus, the next step that I'm supposed to take to allow me to see your light and what you desire in my life. His light dispels darkness. It exposes our path. It keeps us from hazards that are in our way. How many dads in the room? I'm going straight to dads because my girls were little when Barbie toys were small and sharp. You know what I'm saying? Okay, and how many of you have walked out, okay, and mistakenly mistakenly stepped on a Barbie toy or something that is sharp, and I mean, you hit it, and I mean, you are jumping around and holding the foot and waking up the house and everything else. But if you had had some light, you might not have, you might have seen that obstacle that was in your path, the light of the world. Jesus dispels the darkness, and he gives us light to expose the things that we need to maneuver around and through in our life. Very simply, Jesus is the light of the world. Amen? He is the light of the world. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. We could say, okay, Jesus came and he died for us on the cross. He ascended to heaven and the light of the world left. No, it did not. Jesus makes it incredibly clear because he takes a significant step further in this And what Jesus says, so if you're going to have a Savior that you believe He is the way, the truth, and the life, then we have to believe what He says about us. And Jesus said, you are the light of the world. That's what He said about you and me. Really? Jesus, that's your plan? I'm looking in the mirror and I'm going, that's not such a good plan, all right? I am the light of the world. That's what He says. Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, verses 14 through 16, says this. You are... The light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket or a bowl, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. And in this same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see what your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. You see, what the picture that Jesus says is this. If you have a light in a home and the home is totally dark, which is very, would be very seldom to to what actually was taking place because there was no light. When the sun went down, there was no light. And so they would take a small candle or a small lamp. And if you leave the lamp on the floor, it only lights a small circle around. But we've all seen it. If you lift the lamp up, it will bring light to the whole room because it creates this circle of light that expands as you lift it higher. And what Jesus says 
about you and me is this. You are the light of the world. Jesus' plan is that we would be lifted up to the point in our communities and in our settings that people see that his presence is still here. I'm so thrilled about our Stevens ministers. And I tell them, as you go into situations where you're going to be going into grief, you need to understand you are the presence of Christ in a difficult situation. That's who you and I are. You are the light because Christ lives today in you. The incarnation in flesh of Jesus is still going on today. But it's His Spirit in your flesh. And that's what we are. We now are the light of the world. And I've got to be honest with you. As I walk and as I see this culture, I am quite scared and literally sometimes terrified about what kind of world my daughters are growing up in. It's a scary situation for me. After the election, I called, actually Bart and I were texting back and forth, and I had this sense of dread, not just because of an election, because it's not, for me, it wasn't about a presidential candidate. It was about what was being said, even in the party that I have been a part of, and understood that, okay, we're going to throw out these values so we can get votes. And I'm going, no, that's the whole point. It's not about a party. It's about the values. And that's the reason we took this last series to talk about that. But on the morning after that election, as I was thinking about things, I'm just going, we're in a nation that doesn't follow Christ anymore. And I was shocked and astonished that the world didn't necessarily go the way that Jesus wanted it to go. Is that anything new? No. But what are we supposed to do as a culture? Are we supposed to retreat? Are we supposed to go hide? Are we supposed to get in our holy little huddles and all come in here together and say, okay, let's be fearful about what's going on out there in the big battle world and let's huddle in together. Are we supposed to retreat? And the answer is absolutely not. That's not what Christ has called us to do. Jesus said that we are supposed to be on a tirade heading for the doors and heading for out into the world to say, we are now the light. Why do we expect a culture who doesn't know Christ to have a moral base that's based in Christ? That's ludicrous that we would even think that. But we are called to set the culture we are called to impact the culture. We are called to be the light to the world who desperately needs it. And that's what God has called us to do and to be. I love this quote from one of my favorite theologians. His name is John Stott. He's actually an Anglican pastor and, um, and theologian. He is dead. He just died this past year. But he has impacted the church for the last 50 to 70 years. And he's impacted my life through his writings. But remember that just before Jesus has said we are light, he has also said what? We are the salt of the earth. Now, most of us think that salt mainly is something to make our food taste better. And that is one aspect of salt. But I think the main aspect that Jesus was talking about in talking about us being salt is that we preserve this culture. We preserve his morality. We preserve who he is supposed to be in this culture. Because for that day and age, salt 
would cure meat so that it could be kept because there was no refrigeration, there was no electricity. Salt would cure meat to the point where it can be kept over time. So keep that in mind as you hear this quote from John Stott. He says, when men reject what they know of God, and that's a key issue because men reject what they know of God. And sometimes we're what they know of God because we're not being salt and light. When men reject what they know of God, God gives them up to their own distorted notions and perverted passions. That's what Romans one twenty four says. We are given over to our own minds until society stinks in the nostrils of God and all good people. Now, Christians are set in secular society by God to hinder this process. And God intends us to penetrate the world. Christian salt and light has no business to remain snugly in elegant little ecclesiastical salt cellars. You know what they you know what he means? The church. We're an ecclesiastical salt cellar. We're the place where we gather all the salt together, but this is not the intent of the church. The church is in its main intent is not to be a Sunday morning gathering to gather together and worship and teach. That's a great thing. But you are the church. You are the light. You are the salt. That, the opportunity for the church is to be out of the cellar and into the world. Our place is to be rubbed into the secular community as salt is rubbed into meat. So that to, we would stop it from going bad. I want you to think about that. That he just that metaphor that he uses. When you've had a wound on your hand, especially, and you would grab salt, what what happens to that wound? It burns. Never forget, we used to mix our own grain and feed on our farm. And one of the aspects that we would do is we would put in salt. So we would have bags of salt. And inevitably, I would have some. I didn't know that I might have a wound on my hand. But as soon as it went into the salt bag, I knew that I had a wound on my hand. When we get up against the culture, does our character sting a little? Because it brings out the fact that there's a wound in their lives. We are that kind of salt. We are to be rubbed into the meat. We're rubbed into the culture to stop it from going bad. And when society does go bad, we Christians tend to throw up our hands in pious horror and reproach the non-Christian world. We yell at the non-Christian world, but rather should we not reproach ourselves? One can hardly blame, one can hardly blame unsalted meat for going bad. It can do nothing else. The real question is to ask, where is the salt? Where is the light? Why do we throw up our hands at our culture and wonder why they're going bad? That's what they are intended to do. Meat that's left outside is going to spoil and go bad. That's what naturally happens. But you and I are called to be salt and light in this situation. In this culture, we cannot retreat. We cannot run from the culture. We have to run towards the culture and engage it for what God has called us to do and to be. We are the light. This was my daughter up here who sang this morning, and I am so proud of both my daughters. I'm proud of them, not because they can sing or they can run cross country or 
I am proud of them for those things, but I'm more proud of the choices and friends that they've made. I'm proud of the work in school that that they do. I'm proud of the stand for Christ that they take in their public schools. I was proud of Kara for coming and sharing that song here today, but I was much more proud three or four weeks ago when she sang that song at a, what was called a dinner and a show at her school, and it was the only Christian song that was sung that night. She was light as I saw in her face the glory of Christ, and she proclaimed the gospel to a secular setting, and I was so proud of her for that. I was proud of her just a couple of weeks earlier because as a junior, she was asked to give her moment of student expression at the beginning of their football game on homecoming. And her moment of student expression was a very powerful prayer to her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And there was an atheist in the crowd who wrote to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. And if you'd been reading the Star-Telegram about four weeks ago, it became quite the little story over in the news. That was Kara standing for her faith. I was so proud of that. The station showed up the next week. Nothing really happened with it. No, But I was so, I was so proud to see the statements that were written by people saying we should stand up for our values. And this is a great example of this. And others saying this, is, uh, this shouldn't be happening and, and all these things. But more than anything, whether other people think it's right or wrong, I was proud of her stance because it gave me hope to say there's light going into this culture. If for no other reason, the reason I exist today is that these girls will be a next generation of light going into this world. You and I are the light. And if we left it there, that would be enough. But when we think about extending God's kingdom and going out into the world that God has called us to go out into, some would ask this. Now, if we're the light, isn't there enough need right around us? If we just took four square miles around our church building today, isn't there enough need for EVC to invest all of our resources in a four square mile area right around our church? And the answer is yes, there is enough need. But that is not what God has called us to do. God has called us to be very specific and to do some very specific things. And Jesus tells us what these things are. So here's the question. Where should our light go? That's a valid question. Where should our light actually go? If we're the light and we're going into this world, where in the world should our light go? Jesus is incredibly clear about this. His last statement to to us before ascending to the Father is the great commission in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. And we know it pretty much by heart more than likely. But it says, go therefore, literally as you are going, what does it say? Say it with me. Make disciples of all nations. Make disciples of all nations. Don't make good church attenders. Don't make good people who are moral and they stay to themselves and they mind their own business and they don't push their values on others because it's not tolerant. That's not what Jesus said. He did not say make church attenders. He said make disciples. And disciples are significantly different than church attenders because disciples take this light to the world. 
Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus declares that his presence is with us literally when we are active doing what he's called us to do. It is a conditional phrase. His presence is with us when we are called and when we are doing what he's called us to do, to go and to make disciples. We have to ask ourselves as a church and as an individual, is my life going and making disciples? Literally, it means as you are going. It does not mean that you have to go someplace that you weren't intending to go necessarily, but you must go and as you're going, be making disciples. In our life group yesterday morning, as with a group of men, we were simply asking this question, guys, why do we even come here? Why are we doing this? And these men, through a variety of different ways, said, we are here because we need each other. Because if we weren't here for each other, what we would do is just drift. Like a boat that's not tied to the shore anymore, just drift into the culture. And I thought that was a beautiful example of many times our lives. I want you to think about your life right now. Is it drifting? Are your sails up ready to, to get the direction of God's Spirit and the wind of His Spirit? Are you going in the direction that He wants you to go? Or are you just adrift and your sail's not up? You see, He's called us to go into this world. But where does He call us to go? Acts 1.8 gets very specific. When Jesus again is speaking to us, as He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the ends of the earth. To Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Notice what that passage does not say. It does not say this. And you will be my witnesses first in Jerusalem or first in Saginaw. And when you've really covered really well that four square mile area, then invest your resources in Tarrant County. And then when you've invested and you've reached everyone you can reach in Tarrant County, now go to the state of Texas. Now to the North American continent. And then finally, if you've got anything left, go to the ends of the earth. That is not what this passage says. Notice what it says. In Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's as you are going and it is all together. More than any other time in our history, more than any other time with electricity and travel, we can literally be on the other side of the world in just a few hours. And through Skype and through our computers and through relationships that we develop, we can be instantaneously involved in somebody else's life on the other side of the world. More than any other time, you and I are called to go and be salt and light. To go and be salt and light in Jesus' day meant the disciples would spend weeks and months going to different lands, and they did, and they lost their life for it. In the 1800s and 1700s, it meant that they would get on ships and spend literally months going on ships and other places saying goodbye to their families because they would never likely ever see them again. And that's what it was to be the cost of Christ. Today, our cost is to hug our families and to take our passports and to get on a plane and say, I'll see you in a week or I'll see you in two weeks. More than any other time, now is the time for us to be salt and light and to go 
into the world that he's called us to go into? It's a very valid question. I had a family member that asked me this question. As we went to Honduras, as Karen and I were part of the team that, that went to Honduras this past June, and when we got back, they asked us this question. You know, I've been thinking about this, and wouldn't it be better for us to just invest our money into the Honduran people, and couldn't they be more skilled to build more wells than what we go down and drill? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. That's absolutely true. We have an incredible group in Honduras, and Perry Lunsford is, is there today drilling another water well in Honduras. And those Honduran folks that are my friends, Emilio and, and uh, all, the, all the team that we were a part of, they are much more skilled than we are. They actually have to teach us how to drill. So couldn't they drill wells faster if we just gave them more money? The answer is yeah. But if that were the case we wouldn't be going back to Honduras this year and building schools. If that were the case, when Kara thinks of people in Honduras, they're not nameless faces. They are children that had an incredible impact upon her heart, and she's forever changed. You see, by going and being a part, by being a part of the process, your heart is changed, your life is changed, your values are changed. And now it's not just about us drilling a water well. It's about schools being built. It's about the town of Saba being impacted for the gospel. It's about us potentially building churches or helping churches get started and planted. It's not about us and our skills and abilities. It's about our availability to go where God calls us to go. Where have we been this year as we extend God's kingdom? We rebuilt a house to the glory of God. We worked in a courtyard and redid it for the school next door. We worked with teachers and blessed them this year, following the lead of our incredible ladies as they did that. And they've discovered new needs there that God is calling us to meet in this upcoming year, as we extend God's kingdom, it doesn't just base itself on what we did last year. It's based upon where does God have us going this year? As our ladies went and they spent time with the teachers, they discovered other needs. And here's some needs that we have. We need mentors to work with young children, especially men who will eat with a child and care about that child who may not have a father, may not have a grandfather, and help them grow in their faith to spend just lunchtime with them once a week, once a month, a couple of times a semester. We need that. The school has asked us for that, for men and women who might be mentors to some of these kids. To continue this next year, we're going to be, again, following our ladies' lead in the school. We're going to be working with those teachers. We're going to be working at the Saginaw Senior Center. There's lots of needs right around here that we are going to be doing this next year for our EVC Go Restore in September, October. We will uh, be building a home or redoing a home for a veteran this year. So excited about that opportunity. There's all kinds of needs that you can be a part of. This year, we'll be going and helping with the Laotian New Year here in Saginaw to continually build relationships with the Buddhist and Christian Laotian community because God has called us and planted us right here. We'll be doing that in April of this year. In February of this year, John Burka and Bart and I will be going on a vision trip to Laos for the first time that as we've built relationships with the community, it launches us to the opportunity to invest in a nation 
literally hours and thousands and thousands of miles away that we invest locally and we invest globally in the same people group, the Laotian people. See, God has incredible stuff planned for us as we set this vision, as we extend it to others. This year in Honduras, here's what we're planning on doing. We're going to be having two trips, one in March over spring break and one in June. And we'd love for you to be a part of that. I'll be leading the one in March. Perry Lunsford will be leading the one in June. And we would love for you to go back and build a school. Let me show you these pictures of what our children in Saba actually experience. We go to that, Brent. All right, what you see in front of you, yes, it's a swing set. But those poles that you see in the back are the classrooms that these children study in. They look a little bit more like this in the next picture. This is actually a little lean-to area over the well that was drilled last year that was our initiation of going into this area. We didn't drill this well. We drilled one about 10 miles away. But we came and we visited this site and said, we want to build some school classrooms. But this was their classroom. Just looked just like this. A little lean-to with palm branches. You can see the palm trees. It's actually planted in a beautiful palm orchard. They cut it out, and that's where this school is. And they've got the palm branches over their school. Here's their little administration building. It's the only building that they really have. And this is an area where the children actually can go and do recess and do things when when it's raining. And it rains there quite a bit. You see underneath there, since it's the only place they can meet right now, they don't have any other school buildings. You see children who are in there studying. Go to the next one. So they do have desks. They do have chairs. They don't have a lot of supplies. But EVC this year in Honduras There'll be a school building that wasn't there last year because you and I are called to go and be salt and light in a community. Would you like to be a part of that? Would you like to be not just thinking about it and maybe, which is a great opportunity to to pray for it, but would you like to go and be a part? Back here, there's a couple of sign-up sheets. If you're interested, we want to get you more information. We want to tell you about it. But this is where we'll be going this next year. Jack Hamilton is the principal at Saginaw Elementary School. He has asked our church that we might be involved in a good news gospel club, that we might present the gospel to the children of Saginaw Elementary School. The principal has come to the church and asked us if we'd share the gospel. Nope, don't have time for that. Because we're too busy, Jack, meeting in our Sunday services. Do you realize all the stuff we do over here in our building? Share the gospel with your children, our children? No, we don't have time for that. But let me tell you what we don't have. We don't have a leader that will champion that yet. But maybe in this service. The school has asked us to come and share the gospel. We are ready to do it. We just need people who are ready to do it. Maybe that's you today. You and I are called to be salt and light. But I know you pretty well. And I know what you're thinking right now. Many of us are thinking things like this. You know, I love that we have a church that's doing this stuff. I love that we're a part of a church that that does this. I can tell my neighbor that we go and we do that stuff, but... My marriage is not in a place. And when my marriage gets better, then I want to do something. When I kick this addiction, 
I want to do something like that. When when I finally get healthy spiritually, I really want to do some stuff like that. When when I retire and I'm not working anymore, I'd like to do that. When when my children get old enough that I can leave them with someone else, I'd like to do something like that. When I get over the grief and depression of losing somebody I loved, then I'm ready to do that. Jesus says no. Because your brokenness is really what it's all about. You're never going to be spiritually ready enough. You're never going to have everything in your life together enough that it is a convenient time and a convenient place and all the ducks are in a row and everything happens for you and happens for us. There are needs and we are the salt and we are the light and we've got to get out of our ecclesiastical salt cellars and go and do something about it. Because here's the truth. I know we think that. I think that. I think at a different stage in my life, just like the guy, when, when my parents are dead, well, guess what? My parents are dead. Am I ready now, God? Do I have enough time now? Here's the truth. Light is revealed in brokenness. Light is revealed in brokenness. I want you to listen to this passage. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7 says this. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. What's the treasure? The light of Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It's not about your schedule. It's not about my schedule. It's about God and that we have this treasure in these jars of clay. He is the treasure. We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying around in our bodies the death of Jesus Christ. You and I carry around in our bodies the death of Jesus Christ and his power and his light is what wants to get out. He says, for we who live always are being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be made manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life is is at work in you. You and I will never be spiritually to the place where we are ready to do anything for God. That's what God is all about. He's about using broken vessels, busy vessels, hurting vessels, because that's who we are. We are the church of the brokenhearted. We are the church of the broken. And that is who God intends us to be because we can relate with anybody else who's broken and say, if God can use us, then God can certainly use you. It's not about a church of incredible size. It's about a church being obedient. God's not going to wait till we get to 700, 1,000, till we get to the property. God's not going to wait for us to get to the point where it's time for us to be used. He wants us to be used right now. And as I was thinking about that this week, and this whole idea of being jars of clay and having treasures in this jar, or having a treasure in this jar of clay, literally the light of Christ, I thought about that light. And if the light is in an opaque vessel, a jar that is not clear on the outside, What happens to the light? It's darkened. It doesn't shine out. It can't even be lifted up because it's 
in a jar and it can't be seen outward. But what has to happen? The breaking of the jar. And I thought about this biblical story of Gideon. Remember the story of Gideon? Gideon was called by God to go and defeat a group called the Amalekites and the Midianites. What the Bible says about them is this. They were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And he was called to build an army and to go and defeat them. And they were literally hundreds of thousands. And God said, Gideon, raise up an army. And Gideon raised up an army of 30,000. He said, is this army big enough, God? And God said, no, make it smaller. Because right now, even with 30,000, Gideon, if you defeat the Amalekites and the Midianites, you'll get the glory and not me. So whittle it down. And he eventually, through several different processes, got it to 300 soldiers. You know how many adults will be in these three services today? About 300 soldiers. Carrying around in them, in their jars, the light of life. Jesus, the light of the world. But how did this work for Gideon? Close with this. Judges 7, verses 16 through 18. And he divided the 300 men into three companies. And he put trumpets into the hand of all of them. And empty jars with torches inside the jars. That's who we are. Empty jars, but with the light of Jesus Christ on the inside. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout and break your jars and let the light be exposed and yell for the Lord God and for Gideon. You see, it's time for us to realize the broken vessels that we are, that we cannot be good enough or great enough or large enough to make an impact on this culture that seemingly will be a big enough difference. We need to realize that, but still shine and break the jars. And in our brokenness, shine out to Christ. Shine out the light of Christ to a world who needs to see it. This week in our service of remembrance, at 7 o'clock this Thursday, you know what we're really doing? We're gathering the church of the broken and saying, but Christ is still our hope and our light. Where has God called you this year as we talk about our values as a family, EVC family Christmas? Where does God want you to go and invest? I know we'll come up with every excuse as to why we can't do it. Why we can't give time. Why we can't. I know that that happens. We're busy people. We're all busy people. But the light is called to go forth. That's what Jesus said. Would you bow with me this morning? Father, I thank you for this day. And I thank you for your word that is clear that you are the light of the world and that we are the light of the world, that we are your presence in this place and in this community. And God, you have called us to make a difference. Father, you've not called us to be responsible for the results. You've called us to be responsible to be obedient. And today, Father, there are people in this room who don't know you as their Lord and Savior. And today they can give you their lives and call upon you as the way, the truth, and the life and find you. God, I pray for them right now that your Holy Spirit would bring them to the point that they know that that's them and that they would simply invite you to come into their life. Father, there's the majority of us in this crowd this morning that we don't feel like we're ready yet. We don't feel like we're good enough. 
We don't feel like we have enough time to invest in your kingdom. But Lord, we are broken. So Father, in our brokenness, would you be revealed? And would your light shine in this community? And would it shine so bright that, Father, the culture is impacted and preserved for good because of the salt and light that we are in this community? It's my prayer in Jesus' name.